Well, I hope you enjoyed last Sunday's sermon. I certainly was encouraged by it. Justice and injustice are things that are close to all our hearts. I know my boys were asking who it is appropriate to pray the imprecatory psalms for, which bullies classify. And so we have a census plenar, a fuller sense of meaning of what it means to pray for your enemies after last week's sermon on the imprecatory psalms. Well, uh, it brings us back to our topic of justice and judgment. And uh, this past week, the city of Minneapolis agreed to pay $27 million to settle a civil lawsuit with the family of George Floyd. And though some, especially uh, the Floyd family lawyers, may see this as a victory for justice, a statement made by George Floyd's brother shows how far the justice of men falls short especially when it comes to the loss of the life of a loved one. He said, quote, If I could get him back, I would give all of this, referring to the $27 million back. If I could get him back, I would give all of this back. And this is a tragedy that countless Americans live out on a daily basis, whether it's murder, whether it is rape, whether it is sexual abuse, whether it is racism, whatever the injustice is, the reality is, is that there is no human justice that can offer sufficient punishment for the taking of a life or a loss of a life, and there is no sum of money that can ever restore a life that has been taken. And if you've ever spent any time with someone who has lost a family member for whatever reason, or if you've ever spent any time with someone who has been the victim of rape or abuse, you will know that firsthand about the sorrow and the suffering that no sum of money can replace and no punishment can give that person the life back that they had before those things happened. And I say this not to trivialize the need for justice in America. The need for a just punishment, the need to recognize that a black life or a yellow life or a Latino life or a white life, that these things need to be taken seriously and there needs to be a just penalty when those lives are abused or taken. Necessary, right, just. But we also have to be mindful that there is no political movement and there is no social justice movement, be it Black Lives Matter on the one hand, or be it make America great again on the other hand, that can make these things right, or that can make these things good. And that is exactly what victims of abuse and injustice need. They need someone who is going to come and make things right and make things good. And it is folly and foolishness as totally depraved sinners to think that somehow we can save ourselves, protect ourselves, or fix things, or make things right. 
Because even if you were to toss the Bible away, which we should not, but many men do, the history of this world and the history of America and what we see every day, every minute, every moment shows the reality that we are unable to save ourselves, protect ourselves, protect those we love, or make things right. And COVID-19 certainly has done a good job of that. And sadly, brothers and sisters, what is frequently ignored, especially by the church in America, especially by those who profess to be Christians, it's the simple testimony of God's word from Genesis through Revelation, that it is only the justice and judgment of God's word. And it is only the justice and judgment of the cross that can truly deliver us from the sin and death and injustice of men. And it is only the judgment and justice of God's word that can and does lead sinners back to the life and peace and joy of God's word that he created in the beginning. And this is because, and this brings us to our first point this morning, The Lord God's justice and judgment, not ours. The Lord God's justice and judgment brings sinners back to his word. Brings sinners back to his word. And this is what the Lord God begins to show us in his judgment of the first man and woman as we come to Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 15, and we're going to go, Lord willing, to uh, 3.17. Okay, and the reason we're doing this and we're going to go slow is I really want us to, once again, appreciate the context. Because so often these verses, especially as it comes, and it's interesting in particular, to God's justice and judgment that's delivered to the first woman, these things very frequently are taken out of context. Genesis 2.15, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be contrary or for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not to eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. This is the word. Of the Lord. Well, by the time we finish this, I'm sure you think that you will have memorized Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And that's as intended. That's a good thing. But as we read this and we come to Genesis 3, that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. And in particular, Genesis 3, this morning 16, and, and next week, Lord willing, 17, or at least part of it. One of the popular narratives of our times is that what we have just read, especially Genesis 3.16, is an archaic sexist myth that unjustly oppresses women as second-class human beings who are to be kept barefoot pregnant and in the kitchen. And sadly, we have to admit, brothers and sisters, that many professing Christians 
have contributed to this narrative. And in part, what has helped contribute to the narrative is our neglect of this passage as well as taking it out of context. And reading into scripture through the light of our times, our culture, and our ways rather than through the light of God's word, through his divine context and his order and intent. And as we come to God's word, as you've just read, and as we listen to God speak to us through his word, what we sang this morning, and we listen to the divine context, the divine order, and the divine intent of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see that the Lord God shows us a very, very, very different narrative than the popular narrative that circulates about this passage. Especially as we get to Genesis 3.16, the Lord God himself shows us that this narrative and message is about how his justice and his judgment, very specifically, let's qualify that, the justice and judgment of God's word brings sinners back to the good news of his word. It brings us back to the good news of his word. And that's what the justice and judgment of men can never do. The good news of Genesis 1, and this is a little bit by way of review, okay, is that God's people, both the first man and first woman, are created as part of the good work of God's word. Now, we have a reversal sometimes on Sunday, and our Sunday experience is God is part of my life. I work six days a week, I have fun, I earn a salary, I do things, I get ready for my retirement, okay, I struggle with my AV feed, and then I come one day a week, and God is part of my, he's one day, and he's part of his devotions in the morning, he's part of my six-day week. One day he gets, no. The good news of Genesis 1 is that God didn't create us for that rat race. We were created by the word of the Lord to be part of the good work of God's word. We're part of it. And what we are part of is something wonderful and amazing. You all, in your jobs, your careers, the seminaries, people gravitate towards these things so you can be part of something that is greater than yourself. That's the ticket. That's the draw. Come to the Master's Seminary, the Master's University, come to UCLA, come to Lighthouse, come to all of these different things, Apple, Google, so you can be part of something greater than what you start with. Brothers and sisters, in Genesis 1, God created us to be part of the good work of His Word. And that's why He created the first man and the first woman. And in love, in that first chapter, he gives them three gifts. He gives them more than that, but there are three gifts I want you to focus on, and I have them up there. As he creates them to be the co-image bearers and co-regents of his word. Let us make man in our image, right? And he made them, male and female, he makes them in his image, right? And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. He blesses them and fill the earth. Okay, three gifts. He gives them the life of God's word, right? He creates them. And in Genesis 2, we see how he does that. He breathes into the nostrils of man and he creates woman out of Adam's rib. He gives them the life of God's word. He gives them the rule of God's word. 
He gives them a command. Their life that they have is to be ruled by God's word. And he gives them the blessing of his word. The blessing of his word. Blesses them and then goes and gives them a command. Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth. The life, the rule, and the blessing of God's word. And this is what gives them the capacity and ability not only to receive the life and rule and blessing of God's word, but to fill the earth with it. And to have this beautiful role and responsibility, our calling is to fill the world with God's life, God's rule, God's blessing. It's a beautiful, beautiful expression of love right from the very, very beginning. And I want you to notice something. Genesis 1 never talks about rights. It's a big American distortion of the gospel and of Genesis. Well, The right to life. The right for property. The right for family. No, it never talks about that. Isn't it interesting? The gospel, brothers and sisters, is about what God gives us, not what we deserve or are entitled to. And it is a wicked distortion of God's word and the gospel that produces a merger of the American dream and an American gospel that leads to the prosperity gospel. What I'm entitled to, I should have the big house, I should have the car, I should have the great wife because I pray and I put money in the offering plate and I serve. And when it doesn't happen, you're discouraged. No, Genesis 1 talks about what God made for us and what he gave us, not what we deserve. And the good news of Genesis 1 is that God gives us his life, he gives us his word, he gives us his rule, and he gives us his blessing, all according to his word. And the good news of Genesis 2 is that the Lord God gives the first man and woman everything they need to share these gifts with the world. They lack nothing. God makes it possible. He gives them everything they need to be fruitful, to multiply, and fill the earth with His life, His rule, His blessing. And how does the Lord God do this? Well, we just heard it, right? We just read it. He creates and gives the first man and woman gender-specific roles. He gives the first man and woman gender-specific responsibilities. He gives the first man and woman gender-specific relationships. And they are all God's doing and God's work and God's gift. They are privileges, brothers and sisters, not rights. And he does so with the man being given the role as God's servant leader as he names all the animals and then later will name his wife. She doesn't get a hybrid name. Miss Adam Eve. And the woman as the man's servant helper, a helper fit for him. Mentioned not once, but twice. God-given rules that are gifts that enable us to fulfill our calling and our blessing to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with the goodness and glory of God and His Word. 
And then the Lord God himself, the good news of Genesis 2, brings the woman to the man and makes them one flesh. And he gives them his gift of unity and holiness so that they can be fruitful and glorify him individually. No, absolutely not. Together. As one flesh, according to his word. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Genesis 1 and 2. And it is all the very good work of God's word in us. In the clear testimony of Genesis 3, 1 through 13, where we come to the bad news is that it is the devil's lies and our sin that distort God's word, that deceive and defile our hearts, and that break our holiness and our unity with God, with one another, and with the good news of God's word. Are men naturally inclined to abuse and exploit women and children and the weak in order to get what they want? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just read the newspaper. You don't read newspapers. You go online. I still sometimes read the newspaper, okay? But it's been going on for a while, brothers and sisters, and it isn't new in the church and outside of the church. Are women naturally inclined to dominate and control men and children to get what they want? Or even weaker sisters for that matter? Yes. Absolutely. Is there a brutal battle of the sexes in history, in marriage, in the world, and in the church? Yes. Absolutely. Is there prejudice, injustice, oppression, and abuse in our world and in the church? Well, let's be honest. Yes. Absolutely. Let's not sit here and say, oh, no, no, that's not our problem, that's not our family, that's not our church. There is no testing or temptation, but such as is common to man. But the Lord indeed will provide a way through. We're not above it, brothers and sisters. But the clear testimony of Genesis 3, 1 through 13 that we just read is that these sinful and divisive and destructive patterns are contrary to God's word and design for his people. And they begin not with the justice and judgment of God or His Word. They begin in our hearts. And they begin with the deceitful lies of the devil and our sinful and deceitful desires. This brings us, I believe, to our second point for this morning. Our sinful hearts take us far from the good news of God's Word. Our sinful hearts take us far from the good news of God's Word. And that's much about what we're reading about in Genesis chapter 3. We're reading about what took the first man and woman, and by representation, okay, and extension, the entire human race, far from the good news of Genesis 1 and 2. By the time the Lord God calls to the first man in verse 9, and by the time he says to him, where are you? 
Very clearly, both the first man and woman have fallen far from the good news of God's word. Covered in fig leaves, hiding themselves from the Lord God's presence in the trees in verse 8 of the garden. They are far from being the co-image bearers and co-rulers God made them to be. When he said in Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over all the earth. Well, they're a far cry from that, aren't they? As they're there cowering with fig leaves hiding in the bushes. And instead, as they hide in guilt and shame and fear from the Lord God's presence, they have become co-image bearers of the devil's lies, and they have become the co-slaves of sin rather than the co-rulers and regents of God's word. The very opposite. And brothers and sisters, when we sulk in our rooms, when we lick our wounds, when we withdraw because the world has not given us what we think we deserve. In our marriages, our work, our ministries. It is not the image of the God of the Bible that we are bearing. And it is not his rule that we are extending in our hearts or our lives. No, brothers and sisters. Those instincts to withdraw or to lash out when things do not go our way are a reflection of the devil's lies and seduction. We see that the man and woman whom the Lord God blessed in Genesis one twenty eight, blessing them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth together with the good life and rule of his word. Now are a man and woman who in Genesis 3, 12 through 13 have begun to fill the earth with the devil's lies and sin. Even as they deflect and blame shift and make excuses for their sin. And brothers and sisters, you know I've been through this many times with you. But when we succumb and we're all tempted to do that, to make excuses for our sin to deflect and to blame shift. Julie just sent me a text this week of an Oklahoma broadcaster who said all sorts of horrible, not just racist things, but profanities about African-American women on a basketball team. And in his apology, he said, there's no excuse for this, but I just want you to know, I have high blood sugar and type 1 diabetes, and when my sugar's off, I do irrational and, and, and terrible things. And by the way, I'm a member of the local Baptist church and I used to be a youth pastor. Okay? Brothers and sisters, it's in the church and it's in, you know, this idea of blame shifting and deflecting. When we do that, Genesis 3 shows us that all we are doing, and the man is the biggest perpetrator of this, not the woman. The woman you gave me. God, it's you, the woman you gave me. When we do that, what we do, brothers and sisters, I just want you to know, we're not just concealing and hiding and minimizing our sin if that was not bad enough. What we are doing is we are multiplying and perpetrating and filling the earth and passing on the devil's lies 
It's not my fault. I didn't deserve this. And sin and death. And it happens, brothers and sisters, all too often. We need to pray for one another. I'm not saying I'm above it. We need to, when that instinct comes, put it away. I can't tell you how many adults I've spoken to or counseled who talked about growing up in a family where one spouse or the other complained to them about their parent. And these are unbelievers sometimes who said to me, I made a vow and a commitment that I would never complain about my spouse to my child. I mean, that's, those are unbelievers, brothers and sisters. If that's the case with unbelievers, there's no place. We are perpetrating a crime. We are spreading and multiplying and filling the earth with the devil's lies. At least let's just be, remain silent. If we cannot say something that is edifying and good and truthful and what will build up as is the need, right? Because that's what our Savior does. Why am I belaboring this point? I want to point out to you so that we can see how far sin takes us from the good news of God's word. By the time we get to the end of the first man and woman's responses of why they did what they did, the first man is far from leading and loving his wife according to God's word. And she is far from being led and loved by this man. And both of them are far, far, far from that beautiful vision at the end of Genesis 2, where a man will leave and cleave, and the two have become one flesh, and they are naked and not ashamed. No, it's a far, far, far cry for that, from that. Let me ask you something. Marrieds, soon to be marrieds, how cozy do you feel about your spouse? And how excited do you feel about snuggling up and getting close to your spouse after your spouse has just blamed you or thrown you under the bus? I'm sorry I have to make it ugly, but sin is ugly, brothers and sisters. And the truth of the matter is the first man and woman are not tight and together by the time we get to Genesis 3.13. And there is no amount of Black Lives Matter or Make America Great Again that's going to fix what is broken in this relationship and in this world. How do they get so far from the good news of God's word in their marriage and in their ministry? Sadly, brothers and sisters, it's the same way we all get so far from the good news of God's word. In verse 1 through 6, the first man chooses not to lead and love his wife according to the rule of God's word. He's remarkably absent and silent. And the first woman chooses to listen and trust the devil's lies rather than the truth of God's word. And I personally believe this is because both of them, not just the woman, both of them, the first man and woman, want to hear what the serpent has to say. Do you have a better offer than what we've already been given? Verse 4 and 5, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And in verse 6, the first woman chooses what is good and delightful and desirable in her eyes over what is good and delightful and desirable according to God's word. Now, I'm going to say that again, because brothers and sisters, this is what sin is. Choosing what is good and delightful and desirable in our eyes over what is good and delightful and desirable according to God's word. I don't think it's by accident that when Moses wrote this down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he focused on what she saw and what was good in her eyes after he spends almost the entirety of Genesis 1 and part of Genesis 2 repeating that God saw that it was good and that as he comes to the very end after he creates the first man and woman, he says, and he saw that it was not just good, but very good. Well, the first woman is looking at what's good in her eyes as opposed to what's good in the eyes of God and according to his word. Brothers and sisters, how often do we choose what is good and delightful and desirable in our experience, in our eyes, in our wisdom, what works well for us pragmatically in ministry, what I think as opposed to what is good in the eyes of the Lord, according to his word. And should we stop and open up the Bible, we may discover that what is good in the eyes of the Lord looks and is very different than what looks good and desirable and delightful in our eyes. This is what... The Lord writes when he says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Brothers and sisters, when we begin to desire what God has not given us, the car, the career, the house, the home, the relationship, the family that God has not given us. We are beginning to walk away from the life that God has given us, the rule that God has given us, and the blessing that God has given us according to His Word. And like the first woman and then the man, we walk away one choice, one desire, one thought, one lie at a time. And brothers and sisters, as I say that to you, I say that as a warning to myself. How many pastors have you seen who have fallen or compromised or shamed the name of the Lord? It did not happen overnight. We have to think about this as we think about our entertainment choices and the things we do. St. Clair Ferguson makes this point. As he talks about running the race in Hebrews 11 and 12. 
that the things that we're to cast off that so easily beset us as we run the race, some of those things might not necessarily be bad things. They might not necessarily be explicitly contrary to the word of the Lord. But nonetheless, there are things in this life that slow us down and hamper us or cause us to stumble. We love the Lord and we want to be with Jesus and He's the one we're running to. We want to cast off everything that we have to get there as fast as we possibly can. When the first woman takes and eats the fruit that God's Word has commanded her not to eat, it says she took of its fruit and ate. Ultimately, what is she doing? She is rejecting the good life and rule and blessing of God's word, even as she walks away from her God-given rule as the servant helper of God's word. And why does she do that, brothers and sisters? She does so in order to seize a life and a rule and a blessing of her own choosing. Independent and free of God's word. Dare I say that without being accused of being sexist and misogynistic. But just look at what Eve is doing. And by extension, the man, and we'll get to him in weeks to come, does the same thing. But it's this desire to be independent. And it's the lie that she deserves better. It's to be free, to choose her own destiny and her own life and her own choosing apart from the one that has been given to her. Where do we hear that and see that, brothers and sisters? You know what? Let me rock your world. We see that in just about every Disney princess movie. Mulan, whatever, wherever you go, sing the songs. That's the DNA and that's what they're selling. And they're only selling it because they've sold it to the guys for a long time before those movies came along. Brothers and sisters, that's the American dream. Be independent. Don't let limits be placed on you. Go where you need to go. Do what you need to do. Find your own success. Find your dream. Make it happen. It's up to you. Believe in yourself. Don't get stuck being a servant helper of God's word. And when she takes and eats this fruit, and then in verse 6, she gives some to her husband, the one who is gifted to help bring the blessing, the life, and the rule of God's word into the world. Yes, through childbearing. Uniquely gifted. A gift and a privilege that no man can carry out essential, necessary to filling the earth with God's love and his goodness and his blessing and his rule and yes, his word. The one who was gifted to be this, a servant helper of God's life and blessing and rule and his word, instead becomes a servant helper to bring the curse and the death and the tyranny of sin into the world. 
What is it that takes us, brothers and sisters, so far from the good news of God's world, word? Excuse me. Our sinful desires for independence and freedom from God's word. Our belief that we know better takes us far, far, far from the love and the life of God's word. And brothers and sisters, that's just the parable of the prodigal son. It's the same deal where he ends up, and that's a guy, not a gal, where he ends up in a pigsty with unclean animals. What can bring us back, brothers and sisters? Nothing but the chastening and the justice and the rod of a good father. And that brings us, brothers and sisters, to our final point this morning. You don't have to write down all of those uh, scripture references up there. I'll explain that in a moment. It's there as an illustration. Our third point this morning is the Lord God's justice punishes sin but it restores life according to his word. The Lord God's justice punishes sin, but it restores life according to his word. And this is why, brothers and sisters, the justice we so desperately need is the Lord's justice. It's why the people of God rejoice in the justice of the Lord. It's why they seek the justice of the Lord. It's why they seek the justice of the Lord first in their own life. My apologies here as I deal with some things. The Lord God's justice punishes sin and restores life according to his word. Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.75. In your faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Now the God of the Psalms and the spirit who inspired the Psalms is the same spirit who wrote the words of Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And the good news of God's word and very specifically the good news of Genesis 3.16 is that the Lord God does not abandon us to our sin. And neither is our sin greater or stronger than the good news of his word. And instead, like the good father and good shepherd that he is, the Lord God intervenes and he steps in. And he does so, brothers and sisters, with a rod. And he justly punishes our sin. And he does so in order to bring us back to the life and the rule and the blessing of his Word, And this is what he does for the first woman when in verse 16 he says to her, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And ladies, don't worry. Every dog has his day and we'll get to the men in verse 17. And arguably the pain that comes for the men is as bad if not worse, though it is different. Good things come to those who wait. But here in verse 16, for the first woman, and for her role in multiplying the devil's lies and sin and death, 
the Lord God personally promises to multiply her pain. And the Hebrew word for pain that is used here is not simply a reference to physical pain. This is not about getting an epidural. It's a word that refers to globally the spiritual and physical and emotional suffering and sorrow that consumes the whole person and is accompanied by grief and sorrow and distress and discomfort and anguish. We narrowly reduce this, but that is not how the original audience heard or understood these words with regards to pain. And as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to see that many of the synonyms for this word cover this idea of anguish, grief, sorrow, affliction, globally. And for the one who chose what was desirable and delightful and successful apart from God's word, the Lord God justly promises that she will now know firsthand the suffering and sorrow of her choices. She will now know firsthand the suffering and sorrow of sin. However, The sorrow and suffering of God's word, as we see, is not arbitrary or fickle. And nor is the purpose and end of God's justice merely to punish or inflict pain. So different from the justice of men. The justice of men can be abusive. It either neglects and sweeps it under the carpet, don't make it my problem, or it goes to punish out of vengeance. But this justice, which comes from the very character and the holy character of God, is different. By the Lord God's promise, this painful punishment will always be directly tied to his restoration of the life and rule and blessing that the first woman abandoned. Until the Lord steps in in verse 16, the first woman has been, or at least I think you could say the implication or where things are heading after the first man throws her under the bus. The first woman has been at that point abandoned and isolated. She does not have a protector. She does not have a provider. She does not have a leader. And she certainly doesn't have a God-framed lover. She is on her own. And obviously the serpent is no help either. So who steps in? The Lord does. The defender of orphans and widows. And he justly punishes her sin. And he brings pain and affliction. But what else does he do? He ties the pain and the punishment together with the restoration of of her role as a servant helper and a child bearer and the one who will help fill the earth with the life and the rule and the blessing of God's word. God does not cut her off. God does not cut her off from the promise that is given in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. 
on her own, there is no hope for life. But with God's justice and judgment, she is restored to the good news of Genesis 1 and 2. The Lord God here, he restores that unique role and gift to be the bearer of life. But the difference now, brothers and sisters, Genesis 3, after sin has come into the world, Genesis 1 and 2, before sin has come into the world, the difference now is God's gift of life and salvation, justly and necessarily, must be preceded by suffering and sorrow. And suffering and sorrow now will always be tied to life and the giving of life as a humbling reminder of what sin does, but also a humbling reminder, brothers and sisters, that life is a gift and not a right. Childbearing, brothers and sisters, is a high calling and a gift. It is a help and a blessing. And salvation, brothers and sisters, is an undeserved gift of God's word. We forget that in our day and age. And I want to make a side point here before I move on. Abortion, brothers and sisters, is wrong. It's contrary to the word of the Lord and his design. Abusing children is wrong. There's no question about that. But when we frame it as a right to life, we are defining things in the world's terms. And we are engaging using their language and their way of thinking. What should protect a child in a woman's womb is that that child has been made in the image of God and is a gift from the Lord that is not deserved and is fearfully and wonderfully made, precious in the sight of the Lord. And we dare not touch it because it belongs to him. Sorrow and suffering is a reminder of sin and an affliction that points us to our need for the Lord, our need for his justice, our need for forgiveness, and that all of gift that we have, excuse me, all of life that we have is a gift from the Lord. And as we read the rest of Genesis, we see that God makes good on his promise. Eve is given what we read about specifically three sons who are named, Cain and Abel and Seth. And the line of promise and redemption and salvation is given through Eve, but it comes at a cost. And from now on, we will always see that there is a cost to life because of the taint of sin. And because of sin, we are never free of sorrow and suffering. And life, brothers and sisters, will never be free of sorrow and suffering. 
And throughout Scripture, the sorrow and suffering of childbearing becomes a reference. It becomes a sign that points to the Lord, the gift of life, but also His judgment and justice that calls us to repentance and to look to Him for salvation and life that only He can give. To return to the rule and the blessing and the life Not that we choose, but of God's word. It's a reminder, brothers and sisters, that we can't fix the problem. Only the Lord can set things straight. And his heart's desire is indeed at the end to restore us and bring us back to the good news of his word. And so as you look up on the screen, you see all those references there. Genesis 35, 16 through 18, 1 Samuel 4, 19 through 21, Psalm 48, 6, Isaiah 13, 8, and a whole slew of them through Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then Micah, and Matthew 24, 8, and then through the Gospels, Acts 2, 24, Romans 8, 22, Galatians 4, 19, 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, 1 Timothy 2, 15. They are all references to the sorrow and suffering and the anguish of childbearing. Not a little, brothers and sisters, throughout the entirety of scriptures. Turn with me, if you would, to John 16, 21. John 16, 21. And this will bring us right up to the Lord's table that we're going to celebrate today. This is Jesus. John 16. When does this happen? I know it's a church service, but you can shout it out. It's the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, right? He's shepherding his disciples. What does he say? When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Not just pain, sorrow. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I mean, what a beautiful exegesis and explanation of Genesis 3.16, given by our Savior. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. What's Jesus referring to here? His death on the cross, brothers and sisters. Justice, brothers and sisters, and where this leads is part of God's greater story. Women, men, but we're part of the work of God's word that leads us to the cross. And on the cross, the Lord God punishes his son in our place. And Isaiah 53, he lays upon him the affliction and the iniquities and the shame and the guilt and the sorrow and the suffering. Man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He does that to the suffering servant. What we deserved in fullness, what we really deserved, what he really deserved in full. And the anguish and the sorrow that Jesus experiences on the cross, the fullness of God's justice and judgment against sin. Interestingly enough, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus say? Lord, I, I should have had a better career. Being a carpenter, it just didn't pay the bills and the house was a little bit small. Lord, this garden, 
Not quite what I envisioned as the Messiah. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Brothers and sisters, through this life, sorrow and suffering will always be attached to the gift of God's goodness and his life and his blessing. Indeed, Christ has paid it in full. But the judgment and justice of the Lord always reminds us when there is affliction in the lives of God's children, it is to bring us back to the goodness of his word. And throughout the prophets, the call is, will you receive this or will you reject it and walk away? And as we come to the cross, it's the same thing. Will you receive God's justice and judgment and the justice and judgment of the cross? Or will you reject it and walk away and choose a life that is independent and free from God's good news and his plan of salvation? But there's an end of that story too, brothers and sisters, and it comes in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, there are those who have rejected and they are judged And they are judged by the Lamb of God. And the judgment, brothers and sisters, eventually is final and it is terrible. But as we come to the end, uh, Revelation chapter 21, there comes a time where there's a new heaven and an earth, where there is no more weeping and no more sorrow, and where the Lord wipes away every tear. And in the fullness of time, when God's justice is fulfilled and his son rules as the rightful king and Lord of all, at that point, there will be no more sorrow and there will be no more suffering. Because the life and the rule of the blessing of the Lord will be complete and the earth will be filled with his glory. Brothers and sisters, that is what we look forward to. But let's be mindful that until that time comes, there is no remedy for sorrow and pain apart from the cross. And the place that the Lord calls us to is to the foot of that cross and to the foot of that Savior to look to Him and His justice and His judgment to restore us to the good news of His Word. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a Savior and what a Lord. The justice and the judgment and the punishment and the affliction we deserved, you took in full. So that through you, Lord Jesus, we might live the life and the blessing and the rule of your word. Thank you for this. This morning, Lord, if there are any who do not know you, would this day, Lord, they turn from the things of this world and instead, O Lord, embrace the goodness of your word. In your name we pray, amen. Um,